I'm EJ Ionelli, and this is From the Studio. And on this uh, snowy morning, we are in the KPBX studio with cast members and the director of Good People. And that play is opening in the Spokane Civic Theater's studio space this Friday. And so let me introduce everyone. We have Marianne McLaughlin, who is directing. Yes. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. We have Pam Kingsley, who is playing Dottie. Good morning. Good morning, Pam. We have Deborah Marlowe, who is playing Margie. Hello there. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Already in character. And we have Scarlett Hepworth, who is playing Jean. How are you? Hi, Scarlett. <laughs> um, now, Marianne, this is a play that was written by David Lindsay Abair, uh, and it, relatively recently. I mean, it was 2011, so not, not yeah. all that uh, distant past. Yes. Um, and it's about many things, class identity um, and status among them. But uh, it's, I think, in a larger sense, it's a play about, you know, attempting to do the right thing and making maybe questionable choices in that process. What exactly is going on in this play? And if you could give us a, a rough synopsis of, of what's happening. Well, this is a play about, I think this is a play about people that, you know, everybody can relate to. It takes place in um, South Boston or Southie. And these are people that have known each other most of their lives, and they subsist, they survive. Um, it's a working class area, and they survive by, with their friendships and love of family and everything else. But you have the character Margie, who has a um, disabled adult daughter, and she's just been let go from the dollar store, her job. And um, it's it it also the time that a bear wrote this was when we were coming out of the financial problems that we were having in the um, early 2000s. And so it wasn't easy to find a job. And she's very worried about finding a job. So she reaches out. She actually ends up reaching out to an old boyfriend who's become a very successful doctor who actually um, got out of Southie. And she reaches out to him for help trying to find a job. And it's about what happens through all of this and the choices that she makes, the choices that he's made. Um, and it's, it's uh, yeah, it's a wonderful play. And the decision to set it in Southie is important as well. Yes. Could you maybe describe the setting and how that factors into the play? Yeah, actually, a bear was originally from Southie. And so he had all of his, for, for a very long time, he had always wanted to write a play about Southie, but he didn't want to do it until he had matured as an, as an author. And so um, when he chose to write about this, he was very aware that, you know, there were a lot of people in Southie he still knew. So he didn't necessarily want to um, have anybody read the play and go, oh, my gosh, that's me. But he couldn't help but take some of the things that he wrote about from the, the people that he had known um, when he was growing up. And there were a lot of women in his life when he was in Southie. And, a lot, and these characters, these strong women characters in this play, he drew off of them. And so the characters of Jean and of Margie and of Dottie, those are all people that he loosely drew from his mother and from other people. So... Um, that's where that that came from. And Abera was one of those people who got out of Southie. Yes. And Southie is regarded as one of those places that you escape. Or yeah. you are either confined to it for life or you escape. And that is a, a crucial point in yes. this play itself. Yes. When he was a young boy, he got a scholarship to a academy in, proper, in Boston proper, in a very affluent area. So he took the subway and he was 11 years old. And he took the subway to school. And he saw then the disparity, the difference in class, 
So class is a big part of this place. So he would go there to school and he, he realized that, oh, everybody's wearing khakis and, you know, little polo shirts. I, you know, I can do that, but I can do it cheaply. And then he'd go back home and he'd come back home to a completely different environment. So class, from a very early age, he was very aware of class. So when he wrote this play, he knew he had to include that in the play. And since we're on the subject of class, I'm going to turn to Deborah. Now, Deborah, not too long ago, you were involved in Native Gardens, which was a play that also dealt with class identity. And here you are playing Margie in this play. Uh, can we start by maybe comparing your characters in each of those plays? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question. <clears throat> I'm on the other end of the spectrum in this one. Uh, uh, this is uh, not a wealthy couple in the suburbs of D.C. like Native Gardens was. Uh, so this is South Boston. Margie's uh, hanging on for dear life uh, for she and her daughter. And um, there's a lot at stake for her, like day-to-day and uh, so, yeah, it's, a, it's um, a looking at class from a totally 180-degree viewpoint from the previous play. And we actually have a scene, I think, don't we, where we begin with a conversation that's taking place in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. And that brings in uh, Dottie and Jean as well. Um, so, yeah, can we do that scene now? And um, I don't know if, Deborah, you or, or Marianne, you wanted to offer a little bit of background as we go into this. Well, um, Margie has just lost her job. Um, Dottie is her landlord, but also her friend. Dottie takes care of her disabled daughter. Her adult is disabled daughter during the day. They're all meeting around the table, having coffee, and discussing, you know, what is it that she can do? What are her options? And that coffee is taster's choice. It's not a Starbucks latte, just to put things in perspective. <laughs> Instant Kathy. <laughs> so he was on me as soon as I walked in. Who's this now? Stevie Grimes at the dollar store. He works there? He's the young guy. He stands in the back of the store. He's up at bingo all the time. I can't picture him. He's the kid who stands in back of the store. The dollar store? Yeah, the dollar store. Oh, I never go in there. Then you're not going to know him, Dottie. That store's got nothing but crap in it. Okay, well, that's who fired me. Hey, turn it down, Joyce. I always thought that was peculiar. Stevie at bingo. He got it from his mother. Susie was always playing bingo. Susie who? Susie Grimes, Stevie's mother. Oh, Susie with the turkey? Yeah. She was funny. Who threw that bird at me? You remember that? Did you mention her? How you were friends? Yeah, it didn't matter to him. <laughs> Who threw that bird at me? You kept blaming the district manager. That's how they do it. They blame the higher-ups. Stop playing with those buttons, Joycey. It's not going to be easy finding something, Margie. My Russell's been looking for work almost a year now. Yeah, well... What? Russell. What's that mean? Nothing, just Russell. Uh, can you go down and, and turn that down for a Dottie? Russell's a good worker. He's just having trouble finding something. Lucky that Franny works. You know, she won't even give him whacking around money? All those years, he spotted her cash when she was at hairdressing school, and she won't hardly give him a nickel. But she's out buying cigarettes and scratch tickets and whatever else. It's her money. They're married. 
They're supposed to share. Then he should get a job. That's what I'm telling you. He can't. He's been trying. Russell can get a job. If Remy Hayes can get a job, Russell can. Well, who said anything about Remy Hayes? Well, somebody hired him. So? So he's missing half his face. And? And he's missing half his face, Dottie. What do you mean, and? He was such a good-looking kid, too. Remember his mother passing around those pictures of him in his uniform? Then they sent him home with half a face. Sad. Mm. And still, he got a job at Jordan Marsh. Remy Hayes got a job because people feel bad for him. That's how he got a job. Russell didn't go to Iraq. Russell's not missing half his face. Nobody feels bad for Russell. You got that right. I'm going to go put our headphones on. And who's going to hire her? I'm supposed to get rent at the end of the month. You think she's going to give it to me? Well, if you had showed up to watch Joyce. So it's my fault? She relies on you. I don't have to watch her. I do it as a favor. What favor? She pays you $50 a week. Like that's anything. You take it. Well, of course I take it. I'm watching her kids. When you show up, you mean. Don't blame this on me, Maggie. You know, I have trouble getting up in the morning. I work nights after all. (laughs) Yeah, you work nights. I do work nights. You're upstairs. Yeah, working. I make my crafts. Give me a break. Those stupid rabbit things. That's my work. You glue styrofoam balls onto flower pots. I get five bucks a pop for those rabbits. People like them. Then they're morons. I think those rabbits are cute. Five bucks for 40 cents a crap. It's not crap. I hate to break it to you, Dottie, but anything with googly eyes is crap. Yeah, thick off. <laughs> and a, a fitting note on which to end that scene. <laughs> um, and we heard a lot there that I think is going to foreshadow some of the later action and some of the forces that are going to be impacting Margie and, and acting upon her. But her losing her job is really a, a catalyzing event that precipitates a lot of the action that comes on later in the play. Absolutely. And this is not the first job she's lost. She's lost many. So uh, this is a pattern that um, she's had to live through before and survive through before. And there's a a very real and compelling reason as to why she loses that job um, and and the jobs before. um, But it's always been uh, difficult for her keeping work and uh, keeping the roof over her head for she and Joyce. And this puts her in a a very difficult position, and she's forced to do things um, to maybe appease her friends or under the influence of her friends, but also, um, again, she's trying to make the right choices, but maybe not always doing that in the the right way. So are you allowed to divulge, you think, uh, without too many spoilers, what this might lead to and some of the characters we might encounter later on? Well, it might lead to a meeting (laughs) with uh, an old flame, and it might lead to uh, a meeting with that old flame's current wife, but you never know. (laughs) You have to come and see. But we heard a lot of commiseration there, and um, maybe a little bit of antagonism as well, but, you know, it's the sort of conversation that's uh, very natural among friends. And so, Scarlett, I'm going to turn to you and have you introduce one of those people who was participating in that conversation, and that's Jean. Who is your character? Jean is uh, Margie's best friend. They've grown up together. They went to school together. They know all the same friends. I see Jean as uh, Margie's protector. 
Jean has a little easier time keeping a job because she doesn't have an adult daughter that needs constant care. And Margie is constantly losing her job because she's late for work because she's troubled by taking care of this adult daughter. And so I'm uh, always kind of looking out for her, protecting her, trying to you know keep an ear to the ground for good ideas for her to try out, something to do. And uh, I really go after Dottie for uh, not showing up to look after uh, the little girl. Little girl, she's a grown person by this time. So there's a there's an automatic uh, rivalry going on between Dottie and Jean that's already that's already set up in just the context of the conditions that Margie lives with. And there is, but even though you have a protector's role, you do exercise some of that antagonism toward uh, toward Margie, and you are a little bit more cynical. Um, your character is no. Yeah, both Dottie and Jean are are realists. They look at things realistically. I think Jean has a more uh, uh, optimistic attitude about life, and Dottie has more pessimistic. But that you know, you could argue with that even uh, just looking at the script. But um, Jean is a uh, pulls no punches. She says it like she sees it, and uh, as does Dottie. And um, Pam, your role has a lot of the comic relief. I mean, a lot of that has um, or has something to do with the way you deliver your lines as well. But uh, Dottie functions as a, as a comedic role in some of this. Um, she's a little absent-minded, sounds like, also taken up with her crafts that are maybe of questionable quality. Um, can you talk about? Can you talk about Dottie? Well, sure. I think first of all, Dottie is pragmatic. Um, third fourth-generation Irish Southie, um, and she knows that a buck is hard to hold on to. And so you see a lot of that pushing her, her forward in trying to find out whether Margie's going to stay or Margie's going to go. But she loves Joyce, and uh, that is the bond she has with Margie. Anyway, um, oh, go on. In terms of the comic relief, I kind of sometimes think of uh, Jean and Dottie as uh, Abbott and Costello. Right, right, right. Uh, Really, uh, if you look at the way he has put those two together in the antagonism, you know, and there are moments of almost who's on first, you know. (laughs) Anyway, yes, I I love Dottie. I love all the characters uh, because they feel real. Uh, even through the humor and certainly through the pain. And one of the class signifiers is accent. And I don't know, I know that Josephine Keefe is working on this production as a a dialect coach, but I wasn't sure how much um, you're bringing to the table in terms of accent. You know, what is your familiarity with the Southie accent and how much is Josephine's coaching coming in? Well, we all did a lot of research. I mean, there's some wonderful uh, resources online a lot. There's some terrific movies to watch that use the South Boston accent, the Southie accent. So we all did a lot of research. Josephine helped a lot. We had some Zoom sessions with her. And uh, then just, you know, there's some uh, audio books that Marianne recommended for us to listen to just to get the cadence and the rhythm and the feeling behind that accent. So I think we all achieved a point where it's not just put on. 
we slip right inside it. And as a matter of fact, and you can ask my husband this, it's hard not to do the Southie <laughs> accent. After a while, it's been very hard to drop it. Like, what? What? What do you want for dinner? I don't know. Uh, it, it's So it, it's been something that we've moved into and really uh, taken on using those resources, using Josephine. Um, but yeah, fortunately, there's a lot of things to listen to and be able to really ingest that accent. And that's when an accent works best, is when it comes from the inside out. And um, the accent kind of changes your persona. The quality of the accent is um, almost intrinsic to your character to some extent, no? Absolutely. It is, yes. Yeah, Yeah. it really is, because, you know, you can do plays or musicals or whatever um, without an accent. That's a choice. But in this play, it's... you. The Southie accent is very intrinsic to their characters. It's very important. So, Because the Southie community is another character in this play. Mm. Southie really is a character in this play. Mm-hmm. And it's been, and, and I want to say too that, you know, they talk about getting out of Southie and class and everything else, but also there is a deep love that the generations have for Southie. And, the, you know, they came from their Irish, originally Irish I- immigrants came to Boston, um, many of them um, to escape the potato famine and coming to uh, the United States. And they they basically, uh, they forged this neighborhood out of an area that wasn't very, not a lot of people wanted to live on it. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's these deep, deep roots. And um, so as much as, as they say in the play, as much as they, some people get out, Many people don't want to or can't even see a way to. They, they can't see it in the scope of what they have to deal with in their day-to-day lives. And so there's kind of a, a, something going on there, you know, with their outlook on life. So I think it's important to note, just really uh, throw this in, that we don't hit you over the head with the Southie accent. Because in many respects or moments in time, you wouldn't be able to understand this. <laughs> it can get thick. Yeah. Um, and to your point about getting out, there is an, another character called Mike who yes. does get out. And um, yes. Deborah, I think, alluded to him yes. um, very generally before. But I, Scarlett, I think you had something yeah, that you wanted to I, add about. I lived in Boston, in the Boston area. Uh, between 1968 and 1970. I was a sophomore and junior in high school. Our next-door neighbors, the Feenies, were one of the diaspora from Dorchester uh, when they started doing forced busing in, in the Boston area, which a lot of white families just detested, and they moved to the suburbs. I lived in a town called Acton, which was just west of Concord. But all, not all, it couldn't be all, but many of the kids that I spent time with in Acton, Massachusetts, were part of that group of people who had moved from the inner Boston area out to the suburbs, and they all had that accent, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was so it was easy for me to pick it up because I I lived with it I I knew this one so that was a that was a lucky strike for me. Yeah, that's really good that you were able to draw on that personal experience and and channel that into your character. Yeah. Um, but we have this character, Mike, and another name that came up during that scene was Stevie. Yes. Um, and then, again, I don't think we mentioned her by name, but Kate as well. Yes. So I just briefly wanted to talk about these other characters, because even though this isn't a large play, um, each character is very significant within it. Even Joyce, who never yes. appears, yes. has takes on a great deal of significance. So, yeah, if, does someone want to speak on behalf of Thor, Edgel, and um, and his Mike? Well... Mike, he, he left Southie. 
he becomes a very successful doctor. And Margie finds him. She goes to visit him in Boston proper. And Jean has seen him at a, Jean works, at, she, she was at a convention working as, as, as a waitress. She saw him there and gives Margie the idea, why don't you go and see if you can get a job? So she goes in to see him. It's, it's really interesting because Mike represents, you know, Southie is so much a part of him, but does he really want to talk about it? Does he really want to be reminded of his time in Southie? He's married Kate, um, his wife. is uh, um, He marries uh, this young, beautiful black woman who he meets in Washington and um, in, in Georgetown. He's working with her father. And he ends up marrying her and is introduced to a completely different way of life. So when he sees Margie... There's this, you know, of course, oh, oh, yeah, it's so good to see you. But there's also this subtext of why is she coming to see me? Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of the of the play is his coming to his being reminded of all of the things he went through when he lived in Southie. Kate comes from a uh, very upper class upbringing and but she's also black. And she is played by? She is played by Rache Thomas, and wonderful actress. And not only is she from a completely different world than him, but she's also black. So that that that's another thing that comes up in the play that's very interesting. And then Stevie, Stevie is a young guy. He's Margie's boss, but he's like twenty something, <laughs> and he's part of the young Southie. He doesn't have all the baggage, but. Margie knows him very well. Um, they all know him because, you know, she watched him grow up. So um, he's a very interesting character. He brings a lot to the show as well. And they all play bingo together. And uh, so we have a continuation of the scene that we introduced earlier. And I think Joyce factors into this as well. Mm-hmm. And, yes, yeah, she does become, along with the job loss, a driver of the action. And even though we never see Joyce, she is very, very present in the dialogue and in the motivations for the characters. So, yeah, if you wouldn't mind, let's, uh, let's do that scene now. If you want to get someone else to watch Joyce. I don't. Why not? I'll do it. All you do is sit and watch TV. How hot is that? Sit in there with her and watch soaps. That's not all it is. No, I know. You put her to work sometimes, too. What are you talking Making about? Making those rabbits. Maggie told me. Joyce likes doing that. I let her put on the heads, that's all. It's fun for her. Oh, okay. And I have to redo most of them because she puts them on lopsided. So don't act like I'm you some kind of a... You got your own little sweatshop down here. Why don't you go home? Because Maggie made me coffee. I want to enjoy it. Then stop causing trouble. Talking about sweatshops and trying to tell me how easy it is to watch Joyce. Have you ever tried to give her lunch, Jean? She's worse than the baby, the mess. She's right. And if she gets mad or upset about whatever, she has a fit. I can't just leave her here. She'd hurt herself. I appreciate you looking out for her. It's not fun. I could be upstairs in my own apartment watching TV. I don't need to be down here. I got punched last week. By accident. Accident or no, it didn't tickle. She's as big as a grown man. When she starts throwing those arms around... All right, Dottie. Well, you started it. 
trying to tell me how easy my job is, saying Margie got fired because of me? You think I wanted her to lose her job? How am I going to get my rent if she don't have a paycheck You'll coming in? You'll get your rent. She'll find a job. Where? You think everybody can get a job? Well, not everybody's Remy F Hayes. All right. Not everybody had half their face blown off. Well, then maybe she should stop making rabbits. Oh, she better not. You can go down Gillette, Margie. Have you tried down there? Well, Gillette's not going to hire me. Lorraine Feeney went down there last month. They hardly looked at application, and she's ten years younger than I am. Lorraine Feeney's got a record. They don't like to hire people who've been to prison. What are you talking about? Half the Politos work down there. Do you know how many of them did time? I'm not going to Gillette. Hey, you think Chucky might have something for me? Uh, he just cut me down to two shifts a week. I'm looking to pick up something myself. And you don't want to work banquets anyway, not with your back. Those platters, forget it. I'm going to be the next Cookie McDermott. God forbid. I am the way I'm headed. Who's that? Cookie, the one up by the bank. She's got the granny card. I went to school with her. The wino in the sun hat? Yeah, that's what happened after her husband died. Left her with nothing. Now she sleeps up against her wall. That's no life. Well, maybe Joyce and me can move in next to her. Stop it. Scoot on over, would you, Cookie? Oh, poor thing. Don't say poor thing. Me and Cookie are going to have a grand old time passing that bottle back and forth. A scene from David Lindsay Abair's play, Good People. And I want to thank all four of you for coming in today and talking about the play and then performing this scene. Thank you. Come see our show. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking this morning with Marianne McLaughlin, Scarlett Hepworth, Pam Kingsley, and Deborah Marlowe of the Spokane Civic Theater's production of Good People. Good People opens this Friday, and that's January 19th, and it will run in the Civic's Firth J. Chu Studio Theater until February 4th. You can get tickets at civictickets.com or by calling the box office on 509 325 2507.